Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the altar. And I got to tell you, the conversation that we had today, particularly the parts where we talked about the dedication of a church and the dedication of an altar, really blew my mind in terms of some of the, um, the symbolism that, that takes place during that process. So without further ado, episode 16 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. So, today, gentlemen, we are going to talk about the altar, which is, uh, have, you guys have said in the past, is a, a Christified, something that's Christified. It's, uh, Chris, did you say it was a character of Christ? It's a uh, sacramental presentation of Christ. Okay, sacramental image presentation. Of Christ. Got image it. of Christ. Image. So what, so what is the deal with the altar? What is the importance of the What's altar? What's the deal with the altar? Yeah. What's the deal, Dennis? What's up with that? Yeah. Well, the altar is Christ. Simply put, the altar is Christ. And so when the priest comes in or the bishop comes in, they kiss the altar, they address the altar. And so uh, it is the sacramental architectonic representation of Christ standing amidst his people. So if you see the quote from St. John in the book of Revelation, he sees Christ on the throne surrounded by all the heavenly beings. How is that represented on earth in this kind of architectonic way? Uh, that's one of the things uh, that it is. It's Christ amidst his people. So how can an object be Christ? Well, like anything else, you know, it's, it symbolizes or sacramentalizes a reality that's outside of our time and place into a way that we can encounter with the senses. The Catechism states it very straightforwardly that the uh, Christian altar is the symbol of Christ himself in the midst of the assembly. So if you went into a big empty room and you'd say, oh, well, where am I? What's going on here? What's the natural focus? Uh, there'd be nothing particular, but an altar becomes the natural focus of a church building because Christ is the natural focus of everyone's attention. And this comes across, I believe, in the dedication of a church, um, which I've actually never, I, I've never witnessed, but there are documents and there's instructions about what happens during the dedication of a church. And part of that, they talk about the altar, right? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, well, the document's called the Rite of, the, of Dedication of a Church and Altar, and uh, part of it is the dedication of a church, and part of it is dedication of an altar. You look like you're going to say something, Chris. Go ahead. Well, one thing I was going to say is it, uh, you cannot use the right for the dedication of a church if you were not at the same time going to dedicate an altar. And this is, the, this is, this is uh, codified. What you're just saying is that the altar is the middle of the church, and it's, it's around the altar that the church exists. And so to dedicate a church means at the same time to dedicate an altar. Right. We talked uh, one other week about the comparison between the altar and the sacraments that uh, people receive, baptism and anointing and so on. But you can take a step back and say a church or an altar is, is, receives that treatment because Christ uh, receives that treatment. So uh, the prayer of dedication of an altar, it speaks of the altar being anointed with chrism because Christ is the anointed one. So it's not just, well, everybody else is anointed, let's anoint the altar too. It's Christ is the anointed one. Uh, anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit, and uh, that makes him the high priest. 
And you know what's interesting too is that the altar, um, as a as a thing, we think of as sort of a table-like thing. But the the language that the documents use is that the Christ's body is the true altar. So if you think about the place of sacrifice, you can say the cross is sometimes compared to the altar because Christ's body was nailed to the cross. But the place of sacrifice primarily is Christ's own body. So he was the priest. He was the offerer. He was the victim because he was the one offered. But then his body was the actual place where that offering happened. And so um, the altar is Christ and Christ's body. On this relationship with the altar and the cross, though, uh, in this larger ritual book called The Rite for the Dedication of a Church and Altar, the first chapter is on the laying of, of the foundation stone or the blessing of the place where the church will uh, be built. And in the, the rubrics prior to this celebration, they say that the outline, the perimeter of the church is to be marked off and that an altar, excuse me, uh, a cross is to be erected where the altar will eventually Whoa, stand. That's pretty intense. I it like is. it. Well, wow. it, it helps to make the, this point that Dennis is saying, but between the, the cross, the altar, and Christ's body, it's the place where sacrifice is being given to the Father. Right, and Christ is compared to a stone very often, the cornerstone or the foundation stone. So you'll see that stone on a church very often. The, what we call the cornerstone has the date on it, maybe some inscription that's bigger than the other stones in the church, and that is uh, signifying that this building is, in, is built on Christ, who is the true foundation, and then the, the rest of us as the members of the mystical body are built upon that. Uh, so Christ shows up in many different ways uh, in a church building, but the altar primarily is Christ among his people that signifies his holiness as well. It's not just a little table trying to re, uh, reenact the Last Supper, uh, some wooden table or a dining room table from your living room. Christ's body is the place from which his body is served. So it's this glorified eschatological table. Yeah, and so think of how the altar is treated in a, in a church. Um, it's, it's decorated. There's flowers that may surround it. There's candles upon it. It's vested. It's dressed with the altar cloths. Uh, priests and ministers uh, bow to it and they kiss it. Uh, even the, in the rubric for uh, the entrance rites, it's, it's called the salutatio altaris, the salutation of the altar, the greeting of the altar which to normal sounding ears would, would be... Yeah, <laughs> it I mean, sounds kind of weird, yeah. yeah you, you wouldn't greet the, your kitchen Greetings, table. Greetings, <laughs> altar. How was your day, kitchen table? I hope it was good. We'll see you tonight. You mm -hmm. know? But we do that to an altar because the altar is not some inanimate, plain thing like your kitchen table is. It is, as Dennis is saying, it's Jesus himself. And so we treat it with great respect. Uh, we greet it, we kiss it, we bow to it, and all of these other things to make this uh, theological point. Right, and even lighting of the candles uh, at the dedication of a church signifies that Christ is the light who enlightens all the nations. I mean, these are, this is the language that explains why all these things are done at the dedication of an altar. What else is done at the dedication? So, you know, we have... Uh, we, we have this preparation for where the altar is going to be, but it doesn't, and a bishop has to do this, correct? Uh, a dedication. And then there's some other process, processes that happen with the altar specifically. Yeah. Well, a, a while ago, Dennis mentioned this parallel between the initiation of a, of a person and this sort of initiation to, of an altar. So a person uh, is baptized, confirmed, puts on this new alb, this white garment, receives the light of Christ to be kept burning br brightly until uh, we enter the kingdom of heaven, receives his first holy communion. And through these sacraments of initiation, a human being becomes remade in the image of Jesus himself and becomes a part of the mystical body. You know, knowing what Jesus knows, loving like Jesus loves, serving like Jesus does for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. 
Well, there's this parallel between the initiation of an altar. So at the beginning of the rite for the dedication of an altar, and for a church for this matter too, uh, the altar is naked, it's plain, it's bare, and at that point it is just a table or it is just a slab of stone, whatever it might be. It and, receives no salutations. Right. Yeah, nothing, no salutations. Doesn't deserve it. And just as, you know, the bishop is really the principal minister for initiating people into the church, right? And so uh, even, this is, you might, even if the bishop doesn't do this, he is supposed to be the, the minister that receives human beings into the church. So the bishop is the minister that dedicates an altar. But at the beginning of the, of the celebration, he goes right into the sanctuary and he just blows by this table that's there. He doesn't bow to it, kiss it, even acknowledge it, anything like that. And one of the first principal things that is done to the altar at its dedication is he sprinkles it with holy water. And if it's, a, if it's a new church, he sprinkles the walls of the church with holy water as well and the people. One of the second things he does is he anoints it with this sacred chrism, the same thing that would be used at the confirmation of a human being. And he pours it on five spots on the top of the altar, uh, reminiscent of the five uh, wounds of Jesus Christ, which this altar is be becoming. And he anoints it or he confirms it. A new church is also anointed on the walls, too. Uh, after that, uh, there's some charcoal that's lit on the, an incense lit on the altar, and it's cleared off, and it's vested in a vestment, in, oh, an, wow. in an alb. And so one of the rubrics will say that uh, uh, if other colorful cloths are used to, dedicate, uh, to decorate an altar, the uppermost cloth must always be white, because this is similar to the alb or the baptismal garment that a human being wears. It sounds exactly like the RCIA process for it an is, altar. <laughs> it is. There's, next, there's this solemn lighting of the altar where the bishop gives a taper to the deacon and he goes and he lights the candles on the altar. And just like for a human being, you know, the baptismal candle is lit from the paschal candle and given to the person. Uh, and then the, the third sacrament of initiation for a human being is uh, the reception of Holy Communion. This completes initiation. Well, the altar, too, uh, in the words of the rite, is that it receives the Eucharist for the very first time. So it's almost as if this, this table, this, uh, this altar, this stone, receives its first Holy Communion. And through the process of initiation, now it's remade in the image of Jesus. And so the ministers salute it, they greet it, they kiss it, they bow to it, they decorate it, they put flowers on it, they never put anything on it that's not in keeping with its dignity. And so this is how, this is the process, the ritual process by which this inanimate object becomes a living image of Jesus Christ. Right, and anointing, you know, we think of it in association with uh, confirmation, but anointing in the Old Testament was how someone became a priest or someone became a king. And so the, the documents of the church say when, just as Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was made the high priest. And so the altar becomes this more perfect image of Christ as the high priest and the place of sacrifice. That, I, that concept of receiving the Eucharist for the first time is just kind of mind-blowing to me. And having not known this information before now, I, I have a, a much deeper understanding of what the, what the altar is and what, it, what uh, type of reverence it deserves. And I mean, these are things I, I've never heard before. I never heard that the altar is vested and washed and cleaned and anointed and receives the Eucharist for the first time. But now that I know this, it, it kind of completes that picture of the altar being Christ. And that's why ornaments or enrichments of the altar, when the architect designs an altar, are not just put holy things on the altar. A lot of times you'll see people will hang, you know, pious things on the front of the altar, and maybe it doesn't reveal the altar itself. Um, but properly speaking, any enrichment of the altar should reveal Christness. 
So there's a, an old tradition that's not required anymore of what they call consecration crosses. On old altars, you'll see five little crosses incised on the top of the, uh, the mensa or the slab, indicating the five wounds of Christ. And it's also the places where the anointing happened. And so it's proper to the altar to be Christ. This signifies Christness of the altar, as opposed to hanging a holy card sort of pictures on the altar, as you often see in older churches. Now, Dennis, um, I think this is a question for you. What should the altar look like? You talked about, you know, it, it can have these ornamental things as long as it reveals Christ. But uh, are, does the church say anything in terms of what an altar should look like or... Well, very little, actually, of specific design. It, this is why knowing the principles matters. The altar is Christ. The altar is, a place of, altar is a place of sacrifice. And the altar is a table. Sometimes people get a little nervous about the table uh, question because the, it's been so emphasized since Vatican II in a kind of a secular uh, way. Uh, the altar is a table. So it's, uh, it's Christ because he was the place of sacrifice. He's a, the table from which he serves himself, and he's a sacred uh, thing. So I think that's one good way to look at it as a place of sacrifice. And, you know, all the documents speak of the Mass as a sacrifice. Sacrosanctum Concilium speaks of it as a sacrifice. And there's very precise language that at the Last Supper, Christ instituted this continuous sacrifice of his uh, body and blood in the form of a meal at a table. So there, there's a meal, but it's a sacrificial meal. It's a banquet. Uh, it's an altar, it's a table, so altar table is really a good way uh, to put it that indicates sacrifice and banquet at the same time. Now, um, it's my understanding that in the Old Testament you would have a covenant and you would uh, have two flames and then you would have a sacrifice in the middle and you would walk through these. Is that, does that have anything to do with the altar? No, th but this is a good question. Uh, often when I've heard Dennis talk about uh, art and architecture, he uh, uses this concept from a Cardinal Ratzinger about uh, what we do here on earth has Old Testament precedence, while at the same time it has uh, heavenly uh, an anticipations. And you mentioned the heavenly uh, uh, altar a little bit ago. What are some of the Old Testament uh, uh, types or foreshadows? Or what are some of the things we get from the Old Testament? Well, whenever you see somebody meet God, they set up an altar at that place and offer sacrifice there, and they use that as a marker of where the meeting of humanity and God uh, happened. Eventually, it got highly ritualized in the, the temple, the Temple of Solomon and the Tabernacle of Moses. What's interesting about the temple is that the altar was outside the temple because they had to offer these sacrificial victims of bulls and goats. It was pretty hard to get them in, inside the little temple. But after the, you know, the Christian um, vision comes, the altar winds up in the Holy of Holies or the sanctuary of a church because that's where Christ is seated in glory. And so the, the true sacrifice is offered there, the Son, uh, to the Father. So the, that which was outside prefiguring Christ then becomes uh, in the sanctuary itself. You know, there's another enrichment of the altar, which is, again, not required anymore, but that's the inclusion of relics under the altar, which are little pieces, hopefully first-class relics, little pieces of the bodies of saints. And so the notion is that um, they share in Christ's victimhood by offering their lives. And so a good place for them is to rest in, sort of in Christ's bosom, so to speak, under the, the mensa or the slab of the altar. And you'll see that very specific. The, the order of dedication of altar calls it that the, the triumphant victims 
come to their rest in the place where Christ is victim. So they join his victimhood. And isn't there a line from the book of Revelation about John having this vision of seeing beneath the altar the, the souls of the just? Yeah, the souls of the just are under the altar and they're a bit agitated. They keep saying, how long, Lord? How They're looking down at us <laughs> on earth and they're seeing us with you know poverty and war and cancer and all these things, all this suffering. And they're saying, how long, Lord, until you'll come again and you'll remove all of the suffering of those people down on earth so they're under the altar of heaven so to speak or sort of under christ's uh, mantle yeah about these relics this is this is a commonly misunderstood uh, the current practice about relics is on the one hand they're supposed to be authentic we're supposed to uh, as best as we can know uh, the saints from which they came second of all that the the relics are to be placed beneath the altar just like in this uh, image of the book of uh, revelation they're no longer some some of us might be familiar with altar stones which uh, in essence, was really the only altar. This little, I don't know, maybe it's a foot. That was when foot. we had the high altars, right, in the pre-Vatican II. It was just like a one square piece of stone. That was the altar, not the adornment outside of it, right? Right, okay. right. And it was that stone that had five crosses on it, and there was a little place where uh, uh, the relic could be deposited, but now the relics are to be beneath the altar because we don't want to cut into uh, the mensa or the, the horizontal part of the altar, which is, which is Christ. And the third thing is that uh, the relic is to be, I think the, the words used is recognizable as a part of a human body. So sometimes when we see relics, they're just, uh, it, it's hard to tell what it was. You wouldn't know what it was unless mm-hmm. someone said this is a little bone fragment perhaps or wood fragment or hair or something like that uh, from one of the saints. These are supposed to be recognizable parts of human bodies. So they're supposed to be a little more sizable than uh, we might be accustomed to. And I think it's good for us to think about the word altar as a place of sacrifice. You know, if we hear about a pagan altar or some satanic altar, we think, oh, my, this place of dreadful uh, offering and victimhood. Oh, and the Christian altars, oh, that's just a thing that we, you know, use up at the sanctuary. But I think it's good to step back and say, yeah, the altar is a place of sacrifice. It's the place where Christ offers himself as victim, completely um, fulfills every other victimhood that came before. But it's a place of awe and reverence where something really amazing and important happens. And to stand before the altar, to stand before God, is a thing that's pretty serious business. And so the, the, the mensa, or the slab of an altar, should look like an altar. It should be thick. It should be stone. It should be solid. It should say, well, here's the place where something awesome really happens. And it, uh, the documents not only speak of uh, the altar as representing Jesus Christ, but they also, after they say this, they say the altar is a sacramental sign of the human heart of the baptized. And so that altar that stands in the middle of the church is a sign of Jesus, but a sign of you and your own sacrifices as well. And that is an important thing. This is a, uh, our identity as baptized people is to be prophets, priests, and kings. And the, the essence of what a priest does is offer sacrifice. And ideally... Uh, the, the baptized priesthood is offering the sacrifice of oneself. And so the altar at the middle of the church should be a, a reminder and a call to each of us to be offering ourselves in sacrifice along with Christ. We think about the, the rites for the, uh, uh, the preparation of the gifts at the Mass. Uh, one of the interpretations of the preparation of the chalice where the wine is poured in and a little bit of water is added is that, and, and even the, the prayer that's said there is by By humbling himself to share in our humanity, may we come to share in his divinity. And so it's us coming together in the chalice. The water represents us, according to one interpretation. And so when we see that water going in, this should be a reminder of us to be offering ourselves in sacrifice in that chalice. And in fact, the priest will say this, pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. 
well, what is my sacrifice? If we're paying attention, this should be a call to us to be offering ourselves on the altar along with Christ. And I've seen in a lot of new churches, you know, they develop this very complicated building and there'll be all these roof trusses that are very visually interesting. And then there's this kind of spindly wooden table in the sanctuary. Maybe it has a little bit of enrichment, but pretty much you could pick it up and take it to your local public library and it would be sit there pretty well and you could swap out and no one would notice the difference. So people, I think, don't pay enough attention to the design of an altar that the church asks that the mensa, the slab on top, be stone. That's the option. In America, we have permission by exception to make wooden altars. But stone is the request of the church, the first request, because it's Christ, the foundation stone, the living stone, the, the eternal stone, and that the altar should be fixed to the, to the floor, meaning you can't pick it up and carry it away because Christ standing in glory in heaven can't just be picked up and carried away and gotten rid of. He's there permanently. And so to actually plan a budget for an altar where you use a nice semi-precious stone, a kind of marble maybe that can be uh, polished up, that can look eschatologically glorified like a table made of gems. And then you start to say, okay, this is not just the average everyday thing I see in my dining room, but this is something outside the norm. And then it forms you to ask the question, well, what is this thing? And why does it look so different from the tables uh, that I know? But that's a good lead in to the idea that the altar is a table. Some people say, oh, that's the most conciliar emphasis on the table and the community meal and all that. It is. The, the Mass is the community's meal, but it's the supernatural community's meal, uh, the breaking into our own uh, realm of the sacrifice of Christ that was um, established as a banquet. The sacrificial banquet was the, the very reality of the sacrifice of the cross was perpetuated as a banquet. So there's a table festive uh, quality to an altar as well. That really says it well. It's always a sacrificial banquet or a sacrificial meal. It's not like a, a common uh, meal that we might be familiar with. The, the source of the meal aspect of the Eucharist is the sacrifice of Christ. Right? And so uh, St. Thomas will talk about how the church sacramentalizes or symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus from the altar. So there's a, a separate consecration. You know, so you have uh, uh, the chalice here uh, with, with the blood and the body of Christ here. There's the fracture, the, the, fracture, the breaking of the bread to, to help to, to show that this is a, a sacrifice. And so when we receive Holy Communion, it's the fruit of the sacrifice of an altar. Now, um, I know it's not time for the Liturgy Guys question of the week, but I do have a question, and it's something that's always kind of uh, confused me, but we have, uh, so now we know <laughs> a lot about the altar and what it means and, and you know, how, how it should symbolize Christ, how it is Christ, um, but when I'm entering a church, how do I distinguish reverencing the altar between reverencing the tabernacle and, um, you know, during Mass we see the priest reverence the altar and not the tabernacle. So can, maybe can you sort that out for me? Yeah, the tabernacle uh, receives a genuflection. The tabernacle uh, with the Eucharist is the substantial presence of Jesus Christ and abiding. Uh, it, it, even after the celebration of the liturgy, the real presence of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity is there. And so uh, we genuflect to, uh, to Christ in, in the tabernacle, in the real presence. Um, the altar receives a, a, a bow. And once the liturgy starts, the altar, in a particular way, becomes a, a, a very a special focus of the liturgy and draws all of our attention. And so we uh, bow to the altar whenever we pass uh, before it, whenever any of the ministers pass before it. Is it a but, profound bow? Or, it is. Because there's two about, types of bows, right? right? It's a, it's a, if if uh, possible, it's a bow of the waist uh, to the altar. 
which, uh, which is our, our sacramental sign of Christ. But, you know, the, the relationship to, and maybe this is a different podcast, Dennis, between uh, the altar and the tabernacle is a, is a very integral one. Uh, they're not in competition. The, the, these expressions of the presence of Christ are not in competition or battling each other about which one takes precedence. Uh, they, they come from each other. The, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and in the tabernacle has come from the altar, which is also this uh, uh, place of Christ's sacrifice. Right. And the altar should win the day in every possible way. It should be the most enriched architectural design. It should be the most precious materials. It should be in the most obvious location where everybody's attention is naturally drawn. I worked in a project with a parish a while back, and they had some really nice stone they were making the marble out of, but it kind of looked a little dull. It was a limestone. And I just suggested putting a little border of gold mosaic around the inside edges. Not a lot of pictures, just a little tiny border, a quarter of an inch wide. Suddenly, this gold mosaic made this thing sparkle. And it was a table unlike any other table, and it had this gem-like, radiant, sparkling quality. Say, so this is a sacred, heavenly thing, um, because it's a sacred table for a sacrificial banquet, which is earthly, which is heavenly, which fulfills the Old Testament, and is an image of our heavenly future, and is Christ himself. So Christ would have all these qualities, and then the altar would have those qualities as well. It's very much in, keep, in keeping with uh, the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. In a former podcast, we talk about rites and ritual elements being refulgent and bright and shiny uh, because they're radiant like Jesus himself is. And the altar, if it really is this uh, a sacramental presentation of Christ, the sacramental expression should, like Jesus, be radiant, refulgent, beautiful, brilliant. Three slabs of dull gray limestone just doesn't cut it it just, it just doesn't cut it well uh, i can honestly tell you that i learned more about altars than i ever thought i would today so thank you very much gentlemen and now it's time to let somebody else ask the liturgy guys a question all right mail call mail call oh moses moses why do you question me why do you care today we have a similar debate over this anyone know what this is class anyone All right, this week we have a question from Anonymous, and Anonymous says, I am a member of my parish building committee, and we would like to know how we go about picking an architect for our church. Well, every diocese probably has procedures for doing this, so the first thing would be check with your diocesan worship office. They might have a list of approved architects for the diocese. Now, that being said, sometimes there are a lot of architects who've built a lot of churches in, in a lot of dioceses, and there would not be churches you would want to emulate, sad, sad to say. So just because an architect is on the diocesan approved list doesn't necessarily mean they're very good or experienced at building churches. And what I tell people is that church architecture is a specialty. It's like brain surgery. You wouldn't ask your local podiatrist to do surgery on your brain and so you wouldn't ask your local architect who maybe specializes in you know, sewage treatment plants and uh, toll booth uh, booths to design your church just because... Is there a guy out there just designing toll booths? Yeah, I actually worked <laughs> with, a, with a parish once and the architect they hired was a member of the parish and his specialty was sewage treatment plants and parking garages. And they said, well, he's, we like him, we know him. He's on I the- thought that was just a joke. No, wow, no, somebody's, wow. somebody's got to do this sort of stuff. Oh, it's a crappy job, but someone's got to do it. Now, a lot of people mean well. They say, oh, well, you know, architects can do this. We'll just teach the architect how to do everything. But if they don't understand theology, if they've never heard of the Temple of Solomon, if they don't know what heavenly Jerusalem means, if they don't have the first um, sort of basic ideological understanding of what the, the nature of the liturgy is, they might be smart enough to catch up really fast if you teach them. But or, you, or they listen to this podcast. Well, hopefully they do. But 
there are architects out there who understand tradition, traditional architecture, and also who know theology. There are not many of them. So really, the best thing to do would be to see churches that you really, really like and say, who designed that? And then ask them, who was your architect? How do we reach that person? But specialized knowledge of church architecture is a critically important thing for hiring the right person. Yeah, not just churches that you like, though, but you like them because they are representations of heaven. You look at them and you you, you think you've gone to heaven. So your likes are are themselves properly informed by the church's liturgical theology and the sacramental principles and the book of Revelation and uh, similar. Right, and I have a little list of recommended, sort of recommended architects in the back of the book. I wrote Catholic Church Architecture in the Spirit of the Liturgy, and people say to me, there's only 10 architects in the country, and they keep coming, growing, you know, the list keeps growing, but it's a specialized knowledge. You would go to the Mayo Clinic to get the specialized knowledge of the Mayo Clinic for medical care, and so the specialized knowledge of a church architect is very much worth uh, the money that it costs. All right, uh, if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.